0: Thanks for joining us for this message from Awakened Church. We believe in the power of God's word and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's word together. We are in week seven of a series that we are calling Thread of Love. And in this series, what we're trying to do is give you a 30,000 feet view of the one true story from Genesis to Revelation of the, the fact that God has love for his people and and if you're just joining us or maybe you've missed a few of the messages, I would encourage you, you can go online and check that out. Um, but uh, just to make sure that we're all on the same page, what I want to do is just kind of fly over where we've been. Um, uh, over the last several weeks, uh, because today we're transitioning from the Old Testament. This will be the last message that we are dealing with when it comes to the Old Testament. Next weekend, we're going to be in the New Testament. Uh, We're going to be talking about the life of Jesus. So um, what I kind of want to do is just fly over where we've been and then um, kind of bring, basically we're covering Psalms all the way through Malachi uh, today. But um, we started the series in Genesis chapter one with creation. And we said that God is the main character of the Bible. And so often we want to make it about ourselves. And isn't it like us to want to make everything about ourselves, right? And But what we found out is that the the main character of the Bible is not us, it's God. And it's all about God and his glory. And the first thing that God did to display his glory was that he created the heavens and the earth. He spoke and everything that we could see, touch, taste, smell, feel came into existence. And then God made human beings. And he made us to know him and to love him and to be known and loved by him. We were created to live our lives in relationship with God. And we talked about how we will never understand life apart from him. But then we're introduced to a problem. And the problem is this, that sin entered the world. Adam and Eve stepped across God's boundary and sin entered into this perfect world that God had created. And the Bible tells us that everybody born since Adam and Eve have born dead to a relationship with God and very much alive to sin. And what we talked about is that sin robbed us of this ability to have a relationship with God. But then we see the first gospel preached, Genesis 3.15, that God made a promise to us that God was going to send someone into this world to be a savior for the world. And God promised that this savior would come through the family line of Abraham. And then we talked all about these pictures, that God gave us pictures of how we were going to be redeemed. One of the biggest ones that we talked about was Abraham and Isaac, that just as Abraham was a father who was willing to sacrifice his son, Isaac, God, the father, was willing to sacrifice his son, Jesus, for us and our sins. Last weekend, we talked all about the law and how God's laws are not given so that we can earn this relationship with God. God's laws are there to lead us to Jesus so that in him, we can have a relationship with God. And so today we're going to be looking at the prophets, that the prophets were sent by God to reveal the person of Jesus. And so if you have a Bible today, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to look at three verses, one through three today. And really this section of verses, I believe, really summarize what we're going to be talking about uh, today. And the title of today's message is, "Shh, God has something to say. I don't know if you as a parent have ever said that to your child. Maybe like, shh, I'm trying to talk right now, you know? Uh, Maybe maybe you as a child, your parents said that to you. But what I think we're going to see today is that God had something to say and he was speaking it through the prophets. For me as a communicator, this is the one thing I want to do. I want to communicate to you all in a loud and clear way the mission of Jesus and how we are tied into that mission. One of the ways that I serve you all primarily is I teach God's word to you. That's what I do. But really, uh, it's not just up here on a stage. That's really the, the job of all the pastors too, by the way. Whether it's up here on the stage, whether it's in counseling, discipling, whether it's in mentoring, that's what we're, we're doing. We want to make sure that you grow into the fullness of Jesus. That's our job as pastors. So we need to not only just communicate this, we don't want to just talk the talk. We also have to do this in action as well. We got to walk the walk. But you don't need a job in communications to understand this. If you're married here today, you understand this very well. Because for some of you, you only needed to be married for like an hour and a half before you realize, man, it's not just what you say, but it's how you say it. And so you'll learn that verbally speaking will sometimes fall short of the actual message. See, when it comes to talking to your spouse, it's not just about having their ears, it's about having their heart and their soul as well. And so there's all these ways that we communicate, everything from body language to tone, to acts of service, to the written word, there's all these ways to communicate what you are saying is not just verbally being heard, but it's also felt with your spouse. And so if you're married, you can't just say, I love you every single night, every single morning. Sometimes you have to do other things. Sometimes you got to help around the house. Sometimes you got to yell at the kids sometimes, be the bad guy. Sometimes you got to like write some love notes and leave them scattered around the house. Sometimes you got to do goofy things with one another. Sometimes you got to send text messages all throughout the day. Just show your spouse in a loud and clear way that you care for them and that you love them. Now, they're not just hearing it, but they're actually feeling it as well. As parents, you know this as well. You can't just tell your kids you love them all the time. Sometimes you have to get to their level. You got to play with them. You got to be with them. You can't just talk the talk. You got to walk the walk. And you might be thinking, okay, what does any of this have to do with the prophets? Well, for a thousand years, the prophets from Psalms all the way to the end of the Old Testament book Malachi have been writing and revealing and communicating a loud and clear message, the unique and undeniable identity of Jesus. Jesus. God through the prophets was speaking about who Jesus was. And I wanted us to turn to Hebrews again, because I feel like this really kind of summarizes what we're going to be talking about today. But I just want to give you a little background on Hebrews. Hebrews is uh, primarily written to Jewish people, Jewish Christians, and um, they don't know who the author is. Uh, There's a lot of speculation on who it is. Um, There's also, uh, they're not sure if it's a letter or if it's a long form sermon or anything like that. But I love these first three verses because it really captures what we're going to be talking about when it comes to God speaking through the prophets. Look at what it says in verse one. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, which by the way, That doesn't mean it's the end of the world. When he's talking about the last days, it's not the end of the world. He's talking about the fact that he's spoken through his son, Jesus. So now we're in the days of Jesus here. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God on high. Hebrews begins with the words long ago. So just like the book of Genesis, just like the gospel of John that we'll be in next weekend, Hebrews takes us back to where it all began. And what we see when we go back to the beginning is that God has been communicating and God has been announcing what he's going to do. Really what we see is that God has been calling his shot. He's been saying exactly what he's wanting to do. He even compares it to other false gods. In Isaiah 41, it says, present your case, set forth your arguments, bring in your idols to tell what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome or declare to us the things to come and tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods. Here's what God is essentially saying here. He's like, listen, I'm a God who can do what no one else can do. I can tell the future and I can do it with incredible detail and accuracy. Now, there are a lot of other religions out there and a lot of other people who make vague or general or mystical kind of predictions. And we can look at all of that and we can go, eh, okay, whatever. But when it comes to detailed prophecy, they all are absent. I don't care if you're reading the Quran, the writings of Buddha, Confucius, the Hindu Vedas. All of them lack what we are talking about when it comes to detailed prophecy. So the goal for us today is I really want to show us two ways that God spoke and communicated through those prophets in a loud, clear way. And he did it with incredible detail. The first one is this. God communicated his plan over time. God communicated his plan over time. Again, Hebrews 1 says this, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, when the writer of Hebrews says God spoke to our fathers, what does he mean? Well, he's talking about the patriarchs. He's talking about the fathers of the Old Testament, uh, the, the people in the Old Testament, the fathers of Israel. But then when it says that God spoke to them by prophets at many times in many ways, we know this to be true, right? We've been talking about this. God spoke to Abraham and he said, hey, I'm going to right the wrong of sin through your family line, Abraham. The savior of the world is going to come through your family line. God came down on Mount Sinai with the lightning and the thunder and the smoke and the earthquake and the trumpets and all that craziness there. God came and he spoke his law to his people. We know that his spirit spoke through David who wrote the Psalms, spoke to prophets like Jeremiah and Jonah and Isaiah. So God spoke through his people in the Old Testament at many times and many ways. Sometimes God communicated in dreams. Sometimes he communicated in a direct voice. Sometimes it was with signs. But God never gave one of the prophets the whole picture. And so piece by piece, he was giving us insight, communicating to us who this Messiah was going to be. I'll illustrate it for you this way. On your seat, you should have found a puzzle piece. Grab your puzzle piece, hold it up in the air. Let me see that you got it. Okay, keep it up there. Now go find the person your puzzle piece matches. (laughs) Some of you introverts are like, no way, I'm not doing that at all, right? Like, this church is not for me. That's what you're thinking right now. But here's what I want you to do. Tell me what picture it is by just looking at the puzzle piece. What's the picture? You don't know, do you? You don't have enough information here. Here's the point. Throughout the Old Testament, God gave one piece of the puzzle to the prophets. And the prophets were laying these all down piece by piece of a picture of who the Messiah was going to be. They never, with one piece, had clarity about who this Messiah was going to be. They just had a promise and a picture that God was going to send the Messiah, that he was going to offer him as a sacrifice to die for our sins. But they didn't fully understand who this was. Because all they had was one, two, maybe three pieces of the puzzle at a time. Now, I want to show you the picture of what your puzzle piece will make. When we put it all together, that's the picture. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Peter walking on water, takes his eyes off of Jesus, starts sinking. Now, for some of you, you're taking your puzzle piece and you're like, okay, I think this is where I fit in. You know, maybe this is where it goes. And we see the picture and we begin to understand, hey, this is how my piece fits in. Now, I want you to keep that puzzle piece Keep it in your Bible and anytime you're reading the prophets, just remember it's one piece of the puzzle. But let me show you how this works in scripture because Isaiah told us about the Savior, how the Savior would come, that through his sacrifice, he would be made right with God. And he did this 700 years before Jesus was born. And before we can become all cynical about it, you need to know that this passage has, test, has passed the test of historical criticism with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls are one of the most oldest and most accurate documents that we've ever put our hands on, proving that what we have in the Bible is real, authentic, and genuine. So here's what Isaiah said 700 years before Jesus ever hit the scene. 53, verse four, he says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now we read that and who do we see? It's Jesus, right? Why? How do we know that? Because we have the complete picture. We have our whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We got it all. We see the whole picture, just like the picture we saw on the screen. That's what we have today. We read this with clarity and we go, of course, it's shouting, look to Jesus. But guess what? In Isaiah's day, all they had was one piece of the puzzle. They hadn't witnessed Jesus's birth, Jesus's life, Jesus's death, Jesus's resurrection, his ascension into heaven. They haven't been given the great commission to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. They don't know any of that. All they have is a piece of the puzzle. So how could Isaiah know any of this with this amount of detail, 700 years before it would take place? Well, here's how. God is telling his story piece by piece. He's putting it all together, the picture together for us. So if all we had is one piece of the puzzle, how do we know who the Savior is going to be? Well, that's our last point, our second and last point today, and that is that God communicated the unique identity of Jesus. God communicated the unique identity of Jesus. Your Bible is prophetic, which is amazing because anybody can make predictions, right? Right? Anybody can go there and just start making off predictions, but getting a a detail to fulfill all of those with a great amount of detail is amazing. See, if, if you predict something and then you add detail upon detail upon detail to that, what you're starting to enter into is compound probability. So you can think of it like this. I'm gonna make a prediction here today, ready? I'm gonna prophesy. You all are gonna eat today. And some of you are like, oh, bravo, you know, good job there, broken pastor, you know, like eh, that's, that's easy, right? But what if I started adding detail to that? What if I said, well, this is where you're going to go and this is what you're going to eat and this is how long it's going to take for your food to get out and this is how uh, your food's going to taste and this is the style of the restaurant. Here's your server's name. This is the total of the bill. When I start adding detail upon detail, what I'm starting to enter into is compound probability about your meal. And listen, that's exactly what God did. Again, Hebrews 1, it says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, piece by piece, laying out the picture. Verse two, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory. There it is, God in his glory, the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. See, the writer of Hebrews is saying, not only is Jesus the one who sustains all things, but he fulfills all of the prophecies. God, what he did throughout the Old Testament is he laid down piece by piece parts of the puzzle so that when Jesus stepped on the scene, when Jesus stepped out of time, space, eternity, the picture was all in place and we knew exactly who Jesus was gonna look like. There's no, identi- there's no denying the identity of who Jesus is, that he is the promised Messiah. You can think of it this way. When I read the imprint, I thought about this. I thought about fingerprints, right? In fact, September 10th, 1910 was a day that changed the criminal justice system in America forever. And some of you might be thinking, okay, well, what happened? Well, there was a man named Clarence Hiller. And he was painting his whole house inside, and painting the window frames, the, the door frames, doing all this painting. Well, it was a lot of painting. So he went to bed that night and he heard some ruckus downstairs. Went to go see what that was down there. And he saw a guy named Thomas Jennings. He broke into Clarence Hiller's house. Thomas Jennings ended up murdering Clarence. His wife, Clarence's wife, comes downstairs to see what was going on, sees that her husband is murdered, calls the police, the police start an investigation, and Thomas Jennings was convicted of murder. Here's how they found out that he was the guy who did it. When he broke in the house, he used the window to break into the house. Well, the window was just freshly painted, so he left his fingerprints behind, Now, why did I tell you this depressing story to bring down the mood here to make us all feel real great about ourselves? Because that fingerprint discovery was the first time in US history that fingerprints were used to convict someone of a crime. The Supreme Court even upheld this conviction. And ever since then, fingerprint evidence has been used in the investigation process. Now, I think we all know this, but just in case you don't know this, Every human being here on earth has a unique set of fingerprints. My fingerprints are different than your fingerprints. I'm the only one who has mine. You're the only one who has yours. In fact, they even found out that uh, identical twins do not even have the exact same fingerprint. So think of it like this. Seven billion plus people on planet earth and no two people have the exact same fingerprint. See, if you and I were to touch something, investigators could conclude with scientific certainty who we are if our fingerprints are on file. Now, here's why all of this is important. This is why the imprint thing made me think about all this stuff. All the prophecies in the Old Testament formed a figurative fingerprint that made it impossible for anyone but the promised Messiah to fulfill all those prophecies. Jesus is the unique fingerprint. Did you know there's something like 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament? That God would come to this earth into human history and time and space as a man. And that Jesus would be the fulfillment of the expectations of this Jewish Messiah. And there's all these prophecies about where he'd be born and what he would do and go through and what his circumstances would be like. And today I'm not going to give you all 300 of them. What I want to do is I want to give you 16 of the most notable prophecies. We're going to have them up here on the screen for you. What I like about this, you can see what the prophecy is, a description, a brief description, and then the fulfillment of that prophecy. But I want to read them to you real quick. You can write them down, take a picture of that if you want to. But we read that Jesus was born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. That he'd be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. That he'd be born to the tribe of Judah, Genesis forty nine ten; That his ministry would begin in Galilee, Isaiah 9.1. That he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. 9. That he would be betrayed by a friend, Psalm 41.9. That he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11.12. That he would be wounded and bruised, Isaiah 53.5. We just read that. That his hands and feet would be pierced. Psalm 22:16. Listen, this crucifixion hasn't even been invented yet, and they're calling this God's calling the shot there in Psalms that He'd be crucified with thieves. Isaiah 53:12. That His clothes would be torn and lots cast for them. Psalm 22:18. That His bones would not be broken. Psalm 34:20. We all know when Jesus is dying on the cross, He says, "My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me?" Well, back in Psalm 22:1, David said the same thing. That, uh, then you can read in Isaiah 53:9 that He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. That he would rise from the dead, Psalm 16, 10. That he would ascend into heaven, Psalm 68, 18. Now those are just 16 of the most notable prophecies that Jesus would fulfill. Now what is the likelihood of any one man fulfilling those prophecies? Because some of those predictions are just impossible to manage. You can't decide where you're going to be born. Can't decide who your parents are going to be can't decide what tribe you're going to be born into. You can't do any of that. Yet Jesus fulfilled them all. There's a lot of people, mathematicians, professors, who studied the odds of one man fulfilling all of those things. And there's the most notable guy is a guy named Peter Stoner. And he wrote a book called Science Speaks. And it's all about the odds of one man fulfilling these prophecies. And he looked at 48 of the 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And he asked the question, what would be the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of those predictions? The probability of that is one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, just so we're on the same page, one in 10 chance means that if I had a hat, I put 10 tickets in, but one of those tickets, I wrote winner, winner, chicken dinner, okay? And so you win food. And so I put them all in the hat, I mix them all up. The chances of you pulling out the chicken dinner is one in 10. One man fulfilling eight prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. If you don't know math or if you do, here's what you need to know. That's a really large number. It's a really big number, all right? So he illustrates it for us. He says, if you take the state of Texas, who's from Texas? I know it. Not as loud as the last Man, Texas. Ah, there you go. Okay. I was going to say, most people from Texas are loud and proud. All right. Way to to represent your state well, Josh. Uh, But but I've driven through Texas. It takes you about two days to drive through. I sped through, so about one and a half days. But if you take the state of Texas and you fill it with silver dollars up to your knees, but you pre-select one of those and you mark that silver dollar, and then you blindfold a man and you send him out into Texas and you say, go anywhere you want. And when you're ready to grab one of those silver dollars, it has to be that pre-selected one. The chances of him doing that is one in 10 to the 17th power. The same odds as one man fulfilling eight of those prophecies. So what would it be? We just read 16. So what would it be for 16 prophecies? Well, it's one in 10 to the 45th power. Again, huge number can't really wrap our minds around it. So he gave us an illustration. He said, you can't use the state of Texas anymore. You can't use the United States anymore. He's like, you got to take all those silver dollars and you got to make it into this giant sphere. And to be so big that at the center of that sphere, you can extend it all in all directions, extend the line in all directions. It'd be the distance between the earth and the sun times 30. So, we're 93 million miles away from the sun times 30. That's like 580 million miles in diameter, okay? So it's pretty big. If you need more of an explanation, you can think of it like this. If a train was gonna leave earth and go to the sun and it traveled 60 miles an hour, nonstop, day and night, and it started the day the Declaration of Independence was signed, it would just now be reaching the sun. That's one time. It's got 29 more times to go, all right? So this is a very large sphere. So you do the same thing. You pre-select, you do all the coins, pre-select one of the coins, send the blindfolded man back into the coins and say, when you select one, it has to be that pre-selected one. The odds of that man doing that are the odds of one man fulfilling all 16 prophecies. Now, for some of you, you're like, I didn't know this was math class. I didn't either this week, all right? All right. And if none of that made sense to you or if all of that made sense to you, here's what I want. All of you come back here because this is the takeaway. This is the point of me saying all of that. For anybody to say, well, the Bible is just a bunch of good guesses. That's crazy talk. That's crazy. Because when you study this stuff, there's no way to explain the Bible's ability to predict the future unless God is the author. Because the prediction is so precise, it's undeniable. Listen, Bible prophecy isn't just good guesses, it's proof of divine authorship. No wonder why Jesus said to his critics in John 5 39, He said, You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Throughout the Old Testament, God gave one piece of the puzzle to the prophets. And the prophets were laying it down piece by piece, a picture of who this Messiah was going to be. And all the prophecies in the Old Testament formed a figurative fingerprint that said, it's Jesus. I love what 1 Peter 1.10 says. It says, this salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about the gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterwards. Prophets didn't know. They just got a piece of the puzzle. God knew, and Jesus is that fingerprint for the savior of the world. You can think of it like this. If you want to think of 1 Peter 1.10 this way, think of it like this. Think of the prophets, they're kind of like archers, right? And they're all just shooting up their arrows of prophecy up in the sky. So there's uh, Isaiah, he's he's shooting his arrow of truth up in the sky. Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they're all prophets. They're all just shooting up in the sky. They don't know where they're going to go. But they all land on one spot, land on one man, one person, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the one who stepped out of time, stepped out of space, stepped out of eternity, and he entered into the creation that he created. He came into our time born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem from the household of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was nailed to the cross to die for our sins and he defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave. But he rose again from the dead. Jesus is the Messiah, Savior of the world. That's why Hebrews 1.3, look at it again. It says, verse three, it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the Savior for all. That word purification is a word that means to make clean, to remove the stain of sin. You got to go back to the very beginning. When God created us, he created us to live in relationship with him. But sin entered that picture. Sin messed up the beautiful creation that God had made, messed up this beautiful relationship that we had with God. We are separated from God because of our sin. And there's nothing we could do to ever remove our sin. But God gave us a picture of how Jesus was going to save us. And God gave us the prophets to tell us who Jesus is. And so when Jesus comes to this earth, he offered himself his body on a cross. He took on all of your sin, all of my sin. He took on all of that on himself and he died for our sins. And then he rose again from the dead. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are reconciled back to God. That which we lost because of sin gets restored through the person of Jesus. So why did it take so long for God to communicate? What took so long for him to fulfill his promise? I think think 2 Peter 3.9 gives us a great insight into this. It says, the Lord is not slow, and keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone come to repentance. Why did it take God so long? Over a span of thousands of years, he gave us picture after picture, piece after piece of the puzzle, so that when we see Jesus, we all say, yes, that is